That's Holly's story. I don't know what your story is, but uh, interesting how God uniquely works in each one of our lives. And some of us have different stories. Some of us rescued out of addictions and, and difficult situations. Some through tragedy, like you see with Holly, uh, difficult situation with her father. And then uh, some of you just kind of cruising along in life and doing your own thing. And then God rescues you out of that because you were on a path to destruction and you didn't even realize it. And uh, it's amazing, God, that changes our lives. That's why we gather together. It's because He's transformed our lives and He's still changing lives today and does it in multiple ways. He does it through Sunday morning gathering. He does it in other places too. He does it through group. Uh, you saw in Holly's life, just something about being around believers. First with just a natural relationship uh, with a future brother and sister-in-law and then now in relationship with uh, people that gather together in what we call community groups. And I've shared with you before, that's the primary place or for you to get connected to our church. It's really a place where care takes place. It's the, it's the place where we study the Bible together. And so if you're not in a group, we'd invite you to be a a part of that, but then also, I'm just love that you're you're here today, regardless of what your story is or why you're here. Maybe you're a guest. Maybe today you just popped in. You're in from out of town. We believe that God has divinely planned for you to be here this morning, and so we're thankful for you. If you are a guest, I want to give you a special hello. If you're in Theater 14, special hello and welcome, and thank you so much for being with us. And one thing I ask you to do, if you wouldn't mind, um, there's a connection card that's attached to your worship program. If you got a worship program on the way in, if you just take that and look at that, and if you didn't get one on the way in on your way out, if you just grab one, if you fill out on there, just at least even your name, take it out the first time, guest kiosk, what we're going to do is take that card, and uh, we'll give you a popcorn box full of some information about the church and some other goodies, uh, but we're going to take that card, and we're going to make a donation towards a ministry called Women at Risk International, and it's not just for women, but uh, they rescue women, children, people out of human trafficking, out of human slavery, uh, sex slavery, labor slavery. Uh, multiple things. They bring them into safe houses, and it costs money to keep them in the safe houses. And in those safe houses, they share the love of Jesus Christ with them. Many people come to know Jesus through that and experience the life change that some of us have experienced. And so if you turn that card in out at the table, we'll make a small donation on behalf of that towards somebody staying in a safe house. And so I'd ask you to do that today if you wouldn't mind. And then also what's happening today is we're going to continue our series entitled Four. And the four series we've been talking about is what are we for as followers of Jesus Christ? And if you're here the first week, I shared with you kind of the underlying idea behind this is uh, there was a book written by uh, Dave Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons called Unchristian. And in it, what they did is they did a study of people that were outside the church. And by outside the church, it doesn't just mean they don't attend on Sunday morning. Outside the church means they're agnostic, atheist, Islamist, Buddhist, something other than evangelical Christianity. Evangelical Christian being somebody not just that attends church, but that claims Jesus Christ as their Savior. Somebody who believes that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except for through Him. And ask people outside the church, what do you think of those people? And they said things like 85% said they're hypocrites, 87% says they're judgmental, 91% say anti-gay, and you go on to read the book and you say they're also illogical, entrenched in their thinking, angry, love war, uh, they, they can't get along with people outside the church, and, and what Lyons and, and Kinnaman say in the book is that we're becoming famous for what we're against. And so what we've been doing in the series is asking ourselves the question, then what are we for? And we've been looking at the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments, what you see is they're broken down into two sections. The first four are about loving Him, loving God, the God who we say we follow, that has redeemed us and rescued us and freed us. And then what we're going to see in the next section, and we make the transition to this week, is we're in the fifth commandment. The last six commandments are about loving others. And what ultimately this whole series will be wrapped up in is that we're ultimately for God's glory. That is what we're for. We bear His name, we wear His name, and we spread the fame of His name. Today we're going to continue, we're going to look at a commandment that's going to be a tough one for some of us. And so let's just pray, ask God to speak to our hearts. Father God, we come into your presence, and we don't do that lightly. We are grateful that you hear us. And we don't just go through motions, we don't just go through routines, but God, you care about us, you want a relationship with us. Thank you for redeeming so many of us. I pray for those that don't know you, 
that they would see something they're so attracted to today and long for your love and your forgiveness and your grace and that you'd give them that. And Father, I pray for those of us who have a relationship with you or claim to have a relationship with you, that you'd convict us and rebuke us and correct us and challenge us and comfort us and change us and fill us with your spirit so that we can ultimately do the things you call us to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you brought a Bible today, we're in Exodus chapter 20. We're going to get right into it. Exodus chapter 20 is the second book in the Old Testament. Genesis and Exodus and Exodus chapter 20 is in the middle. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. I'm just going to give you a review of some of the things that we talked about, but we're really going to focus in on verse 12 today in Exodus chapter 20. And then as you turn there, just to remind you, uh, no scripture happens in isolation. There's always a context. And what we've been talking about are some popular verses called the Ten Commandments. But sometimes we think of them as if they just dropped out of the sky, like they're just these rules that we are to live by that came out of who knows where and what was happening. But I reminded you the first week that the context for these is the context of relationship. They're given to people that already have been redeemed, already been rescued, already been delivered. Now they're being guided and they're being provided for. God has a relationship with these people. And by His grace, He rescued, He chose these people. And by faith, they decided to cross the Red Sea. They decided to walk with Him, by faith with Him. And that's how a relationship happens with God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. By grace, through faith. It's by grace He offers you eternal life. It's by faith you accept that gift and accept Him as your Savior and your Lord. It's by grace that he rescued the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. And think about that bondage, 430 years. You ever pray about something and think to yourself, is he even listening? Like, does he care? Is he there? What's going on? And you imagine what they were going through, but in his timing, he reached down and he rescued these people out and he delivered them. And, and now in the passage we're looking at, they've been living in freedom for three months. And it's an intense scene in Exodus chapter 19 where there's thunder and lightning and the holy and majestic and totally other righteous God descends upon the earth. <laughs> the day you'd never forget. And in chapter 19 and verse 18, it says that the mountain, Mount Sinai, is coming down on it, it's shaking violently. And there's smoke that's billowing up like from a furnace. And there's thunder and there's lightning. And then the trumpet starts to go louder and louder and louder. And then God speaks. To two million people. Look at what he says. God spoke all these words, verse 1. Verse 2, I am the Lord, your God, a personal God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And in the first week we saw that he's a God who's for freedom. He didn't rescue them from bondage to bring them into more bondage. He didn't re rescue them from Egyptian bondage to bring them into religious bondage or into bondage to some rules. Instead of what he does is he gives these guidelines, these, this way to live within freedom. And the way to live within freedom is to have no other God before you. Because every other God leads you into more bondage. And so he's an exclusive God. He's a unique God. He is a different God. He leads you into freedom. He's a God who's for freedom. And then in verse 4, he says this, You shall not make for yourself an idol. That's no phonies. And we talked about in the second week, he's for freedom. First week, the second week, we talked about he's for the real thing. No phonies. And a phony can be anything you put on the throne of your life that's not God. It can be yourself, it can be your money, it can be another person, it can be a relationship, it could be sinfulness, it could be all kinds of different things, it could be a ministry. And anything you place there, it's a phony, it will never actually deliver on what it promises to deliver on, but God will. And so he's for the real thing, he's for authenticity, and he says, do not put any of these thrones, these, these things on the throne of your life in the form of anything, and he's real extensive here. In heaven above, or on the earth uh, beneath, or in the waters below, nothing. You shall not bow down to them, or worship them, we shall serve them. For I, the Lord your God, your God, personal God, am a jealous God and burning with zeal for you. And there's repercussions for decisions. Punishing the children 
for the sin of the fathers of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then we saw in verse 7, he's for the fame of his name. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, the Lord, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And then verses 8 through 11, we looked at last week, and we talked about how this one's actually fulfilled in Christ. It's not about a day anymore, but he's for rest. Jesus fulfilled this. This is the one commandment that's not repeated in the New Testament. It's unique because we're no longer under the Mosaic covenant, these promises that are given here to Moses. We're now under a covenant of grace, a covenant of Jesus, a covenant of his blood where he's freed us and he's able to say to us, you come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest for your soul. We're not talking about a vacation. We're not talking about a day off. It's not about the day. It's about you coming to me. I fulfilled this and I'm able to offer you some rest for your soul. Some of you might need that today. Now for rest for the soul. And then we come to another commandment, verse 12. We're at a transition point in the Ten Commandments. Those first four commandments are all about our relationship with God. It's all about loving God. These next six commandments we're going to look at are all about our relationship with each other. They're all about loving people. And the first one he talks about, the first human-to-human relationship we ever have. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now, each one of these commandments reveals something about God's character, that he's for the real thing, that he's authentic, that he's unique, that he's for the fame of his name, that he exists for his glory and that we exist for his glory. And we see these different things about his characteristic. And here we see that he's for honor. God is for honor. And so what characteristic does it reveal when we actually live out what he commands us to live out here? It reveals his love. Because honor reveals God's love. True biblical honor reveals God's love. And think about love. There's some universal truths that we all realize about love. Maybe you never verbalized them. Maybe no one's ever said them before. But the things we just know to be true about love. Like, for instance, when you fall in love with someone, you end up liking and loving, eventually loving the things that they love. And just you've seen this happen before. And just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, it's like if you meet a guy, he's never bought tickets to anything in his life that didn't happen at Cameron Indoor, Right? And then he meets a girl, and all of a sudden he's buying Peter Pan tickets at like RBC Center or Deepak or something, right? He used to maybe play basketball every Saturday. Now he's hanging out with her and scrapbooking. <laughs> How does that happen? Because when you fall in love with someone, you start to love what they love. It's, it's happened at my house. My house is a great example of this. Because my wife, just to let you know my wife, she's as girly as they come. She's got a little bow thing in her hair up here today. She's frou-frou. You look at the lamps at our house, have little like crystal things hanging off of them, and she loves pink and girl and tea and all that kind of, she loves all that kind of stuff. You know what else she loves? Football. Do you know why? Because she loves me. And here's the thing. When we first got married, she tells me the story how this happened. When we first got married, she didn't realize in the first year of her marriage, she's every all fall, every weekend, I'm sitting there in front of the TV and I'm just doing this thing. And so she's trying to get me to do other stuff and I'm kind of committed to what I'm committed to here. And, and so she sees this happening. And she realized, well, I got to either beat them or join them. And so I, she just started making food and kind of having a party, inviting other people. And I'm still kind of like focused on what's happening. So she had to actually enjoy the game. And so she started to watch the games with me. Now, guys, before you give me too much credit in discipling my wife, let me just tell you that I'm, she's still a work in progress. Okay. She's still, we're still working through this stuff and we'll deal with that after. But anyway, uh, she's still a work in progress because she's, she loves football. She's got a terrible taste in teams. Okay? She likes the Dallas Cowboys. That's her team. 
I am a Detroit Lions fan, which has been a curse my entire life, but until this year. Last week was great. Yeah, some Lions fan. Whoa. All are welcome. Come just as you are. Uh, we're glad you're here. Um, but I'm a Lions fan, and she's a Cowboys fan. Last week was great because our teams played each other, and my team won. <laughs> it was really great. But what happened in our house is we were, we were loving the whole deal. We were doing cheers. I was banging on the floor. I was like... Let's go, Lions. You know, cheering, trying to, we're trying to, we have little kids, about five and under. We're trying to manipulate, we're trying to persuade them <laughs> towards our team. And she's trying to get them to go, Cowboys, defeat the Lions. She's making up cheers and do all this stuff. And I'm just chanting. And we're trying to keep track of who's on their flip flopping. The, anyway, they're flip flopping teams and going through this whole thing. And I thought I was winning. My one little daughter, she's two years old. She started chanting with me. She's like, Go, Lion King. <laughs> I count that vote still, but anyway, we were having a blast, and they were loving it. Why were they loving it? They don't even understand the game. They were loving it because they love us. They want to love what we love, and my wife, she loves it. She would never, on her own, individually choose to love football, but she does because she loves me. Now, we claim to love God. First four commandments, all about loving God, and we claim as followers of Jesus Christ that we're in love with God. Do we love what He loves? What does He love? And for God to love the world. What is that? God loves a ball of dirt that's floating around the universe? See, God loves people. And He loves all kinds of people. He loves old people and He loves young people. He loves rich people and He loves poor people. He loves black people and He loves white people. He loves educated people and not educated people. He loves people in societies like ours with all of our technology. He loves people that live in the bush in third world countries. He loves people with this language and that language, male and female, Jew and Greek. And He loves all people. And He loves annoying people. And he loves fun to be around people. And he loves all kinds of people. People that are real needy and want stuff and people that are real generous and will give stuff. And he loves all the people. So the question becomes for us, do we? See, for God so loved the world, that's people that he gave. His precious son, his unique son, his one-of-a-kind, only begotten son. That whoever would believe in him would have fullness of life, abundant life, real life, here and now life that will last an eternity with a relationship with the Father. So do we love what he loves? And that's kind of an easy question to answer, right? It's like a yes-no question. Yeah, we love people. I mean, we don't hate people, so we love people. And you kind of think through the whole thing. Some questions I've been just thinking through this week. When you think about people, do you think about image bearers of God? Or do you think of people that are sometimes just in your way? Whether you're at the grocery store or driving in the car, wherever it is. Do you think of people... But they actually, if God's word is true, because he says he created us, all of us, male and female, created all of us in his image, that in some way, and it's broken and it's tainted, I understand all that, but in some way we reveal attributes of God. We reveal a characteristic of God. In some way every person does that. Do you believe that? When you think about people, do you think about statistics or do you think about their stories? You know, periodically I'll share statistics with you. How many people attended church or how many people trusted Jesus at an event or whatever it was or how many people got baptized one week or sometimes I'll share stories with you about how many orphans there are in the world or I'll share with you statistics about how many people there are in our city that don't have anywhere to sleep and that won't eat a meal today. When you hear that stuff, are they just numbers? Are, are, are people just numbers or are they stories? Does everybody have a story? Every person who trusts Jesus has a story. Every person who attends our church has a story. Every person who comes to your group has a story. Every person who doesn't have a place to sleep tonight, they have a story. Every orphan has a story. When Jesus died, he didn't die for statistics. When Jesus died, he didn't die for people that were an inconvenience. When you think of people, here's the third question I was thinking about this week. Do you think about people as the mission? Or are they a means to accomplish your mission? Are people a mission or a means? 
if there's a mission, that's why you wake up for the sake of other people. That's why you get up every day is for the sake of to demonstrate the glory of God, where the fame of his name for the sake of other people that they might know what you know. Or are people just a means for you to get to whatever your goals are? To climb whatever ladder it is you're trying to climb. Are, are people a mission or a means? And so the question becomes, do we love people? Really? We claim to love him. Do we love what he loves? And he says that he loves people. And the first commandment he gives us about loving other people has to do with the first relationship we ever have with another person. Our father and our mother. And look at what he says in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12. Honor your father and your mother. What does that mean? Well, to honor comes from a Hebrew word, kavid. Kavid means to give weight to, to be heavy. <laughs> so to honor your parents next time. Hey, mom, dad, you're fat. You know, Not exactly. Don't say that. To put weight in the position of fatherhood, of motherhood is what it is to do. It's the idea of, remember when we talked about God's name? And we talked about how, how crazy is it that an infinite God indescribable God. We try to describe him with letters on a page. How crazy is that? And then the word that's on the page and that commandment is the word Lord. And wrapped up in that title, we said, are all the other titles of God. He's the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the Creator, the Redeemer, the Deliverer, the Guider, the Provider. He's a mighty God. He is an everlasting Father. He's a wonderful Counselor. He's a Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is the Trinity. He's an author and perfecter. He's a forgiver. He's all those things wrapped up into that one word, Lord. And not only that, it reveals His attributes, His grace, His mercy, His love, His wrath, His justice, His righteousness, His holiness, His totally otherness, His omniscience, His omnipresence, His all-powerfulness. All wrapped up in that name. You know what that is? That name has weight. deserves honor. That's to be weighty. And you think about what is it that we give weight to in our society? What do we give weight to in our culture? And we give weight to things like education. I mean, somebody's educated, they've got more authority behind them. If somebody has the additional, you know, PhD behind their name, that means something. We give weight to that. And you read, you know, Forbes or whatever, Business Weekly, whatever thing comes out with the best places to live, where they talk about our area. They'll say stuff like, you know, most PhDs per capita anywhere in the U.S. There's weight given to that. But not only do we give weight to education, we give weight to positions. Titles, you know, places that people have in life. If you meet somebody in the lobby today and you start talking to them and they'll tell you, I'm the president of such and such, so and so, and we make these widgets. You don't understand anything they just said. But they're the president and there's weight to that. We give weight to money. Money means something in our society. It means achievement. It means power. It means control. We actually label people by their bank accounts. That guy's a millionaire. <laughs> How crazy is that? Like, think about that for a minute. We give weight to that, to money. And here we're told to give weight to parents? Really? I mean, parents, they don't have a clue, right? I mean, parents? It's like get out from underneath them as fast as you can. Parents, they've caused some of the greatest wounds in your life, right? I mean, it's why you relate the way that you relate. They've caused, they're, the, they're the reason why you have the struggles that you have and some of the things that you deal with, right? Honor them? But then you read through the Scriptures, you keep reading through the Old Testament, this is serious. Those who curse, those who fight with parents, there's serious consequences. You read Leviticus chapter 19, what it says, and the NIV it says to respect, but a lot of times we can explain our way out of what respect means. And so I like how the New American Standard or the English Standard says it. It says this, Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. Revere. Do you know what that word means? It means to stand in awe of. Who does that? 
I mean, my kids, they're young. They do that sometimes. They're like five and under. I'll be like carrying, you know, Christmas decorations out or something. There'll be like an empty box. I'll pretend like it's real heavy. Going through the thing, and they'll be like, my dad can lift the whole house. <laughs> they're wrong, but it's great to hear. They're kind of in awe of me at that moment. And someday what's going to happen is they're going to realize these are more like pipe cleaners than they are pipes. You know, they're going to realize I got problems. Yeah, I'm not perfect. And everyone is probably hearing my words today. You probably know your parents aren't perfect. And so to stand in awe of them, to give them weight, to honor them, who does that? And when we do see it happen, it's like mind-boggling that someone actually does that. Like I saw this special the other day. There's this show called Outside the Lines that ESPN does every once in a while. Essentially what it is is they'll take an athlete, plays whatever game and inside the chalk, you know, inside the baselines, and they'll talk about their story outside of the sport. Like what's their real life story? And they were doing this story on this guy who was a mixed martial arts fighter named Rad Martinez. Bad dude. They started, I'm he's out there dancing around. I'm sizing him up. You know, he's in the lower weight category. <laughs> it's all muscle. But anyway, he's uh, he's out there doing his thing, and I'm watching this thing, and just I don't know much about mixed martial arts and cage fighting, and this guy's story got interesting real fast. They were talking about how when he was 11 years old, his dad was in a car accident, and the doctor said that he wouldn't make it. But he did make it in a vegetative state. He was brain damaged, couldn't recognize people, didn't, wasn't able to do anything for, for himself, and his mom had already died, so he didn't have any parents. And then what happens is they go to live with his grandma. He and his brother go to live with grandma and grandpa, and he said and he watched grandma take care of his dad, his name is Ricky, every day, 365 days a year, seven days a week. Get him up in the morning, brush his teeth, shave him, make him breakfast, feed him breakfast, clean him, bathe him, put him back to bed all day, every day. And it didn't matter, he said, if grandma was sick, she still took care of dad. If grandma was tired, she still took care of dad. Uh, that's the home that he grew up in from the time he was 11 years old. When he went away to college, he went to Clarion University and ended up wrestling there, became an All-American wrestler. After college, came back to live with Grandma and Dad again. And about a year after he came back from college, Grandma went to the doctor. He said, I don't even know what test she was getting, but they came back and they told her she had stage 4 pancreatic cancer. And his grandma started this process where she was dying. She died fairly quickly from the way that the story went. So while she was struggling in death, she just kept saying, well, I don't know what's going to happen to Ricky. That's her son, his dad. Who's going to take care of him? And finally he just said, Grandma, I'm still going to be here. I'll, I'll take care of him. She passed away, and then for the last five years, he's been taking care of his dad every day, 365 days a year, seven days a week. Wakes him up in the morning, takes care of does everything for him. And at the same time, he's pursuing his career in MMA, the mixed martial arts fighter. He said in the report that in order to do that, it usually requires, if you're going to be at the elite level, eight to nine hours a day of training. He's lucky if he gets two hours a day. And they talk through his day and what it was like. He wakes up at 6.50 a.m. every day, cooks his dad breakfast. Then he goes and gets his dad out of bed, shaves him, brushes his teeth, takes him down, feeds him breakfast. That's done by about 8.20. Spends some time with him until about 10.25, lays him down, makes him lunch at 11.40, and eats his own lunch at 12. Then lays him down again for a little while, gets some rest at 1.30, gets him back up at 2 o'clock, starts physical training, trains him every day. Physical training, he does it himself, twisting him, stretching him, making sure his muscles don't get all tight and atrophied. Two hours a day, every day, 365 days a year, seven days a week. And they start talking to him about his story. And it got gripping to me when they started asking questions about, like, does he want a family? He says, yeah, I want a family. But if I can't have a family, that's all right. I made this decision. I made a decision to take care of his dad. And he knows he could be a better fighter if he had more time, but that's all right because he's got his responsibilities at home. And he says people say to him all the time the same, the same thing. I don't know if I could ever do that. 
And he kind of laughs to himself because he says, I know that many people could do this, but he's chosen to do this. And he says, sometimes people ask him the question, why? Why do you do this? He says he just smiles inside because the answer is so simple. It's because he's my dad. That's honor. That's why he does it. And think about his story. He doesn't do it because his dad was at every wrestling match he ever had. He wasn't. He doesn't do it because his dad taught him how to be a man. He didn't. He couldn't. He doesn't do it because of how great his dad was. He does it because of the position that he has as a father. He's my dad. God's entrusted me with this man. Now, I don't know anything about Rad Martinez's spiritual life, whether he's a believer. I know he's keeping the fifth commandment. He's honoring his father. We honor our father and our mother. It seems so foreign, so crazy to, to do such a thing. And, and Rad says in his story, this isn't fun. And it's not easy. And I don't know your parents. And any of most of you, I don't know your story, your parent of your story. Like, what were your parents like? And some of you, I know your parents go to church here, and I know some of them, but I'll tell you what, it's not easy. It's not easy for you. It's not easy for me. It's not easy for any of us. It hasn't been easy for anyone ever. Even Jesus shared with you that Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all the commandments that are given. Now think about that for a minute. There's this crazy verse in Luke chapter 2. And just give you an idea of what's happened in Luke chapter 2. He's got these earthly parents, Joseph and Mary. And they take Jesus to Jerusalem one time. They're in this town together. And then they leave and they forget Jesus. <laughs> kind of funny, isn't it? And they leave. They don't realize it for a day. Now I don't know how all this happened. There's like caravans of people traveling. And apparently there's a conversation. Do you have Jesus? No. Do you have Jesus? No. I don't have Jesus either. Who has Jesus? And nobody in the whole group had Jesus. <laughs> it wasn't like a religious thing either. They like really didn't have Jesus. And so they're looking for Jesus and they can't find him. And then the text tells us for three days they go searching for Jesus. He's at the temple for three days. Can you imagine as a parent how anxious you would be? He was 12 years old at this time. If you lost your child for three days and then they find Jesus, and look what Jesus does. Luke chapter 2, verse 51. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But Mary, his mother, treasured all these things that are hard. <laughs> yeah, we got him back. He was obedient to them. Some translations say he was subject to them. Now, I'm sure Mary and Joseph were great parents. But try to wrap your mind around the fact that Jesus was God and he becomes subject, obedient to human parents. I have a hard time with that because I can't imagine what heaven's like. I mean, I don't know what the scriptures talk about, but a place where there's no sin, a place where there's no pain, that nobody gets diseased, that nobody's dying, that nobody's abused, none of that stuff is happening. And he's being subject here, but think about his role when he was in heaven. You know, the streets of gold and this perfect place and how amazing it was. Everyone's subject to him. And the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy are you. And then he comes here and he's subject to them. Mary and Joseph, probably great parents. They're human. They lost him once, you know, more perfect, but he's obedient to them. But not only is he obedient to them, He's always submissive to his heavenly Father. You see, the way he says it, he says, you come down here, you die on a cross. He's obedient to that. And you think about his relationship with his earthly parents. He gives new meaning to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, doesn't it? That in humility you consider others better than yourselves. He's being obedient to his heavenly Father. And if you do a survey of the Gospel of John, what you'll find out is that Jesus only does what his Father tells him to do. You see, in John chapter 5, and verse 9, he only does what he sees the Father doing. He sees the Father raising dead people. He sees the Father loving people. He sees the Father doing all the stuff that he does. So I only do what the Father tells me to do. In verse uh, uh, John, in Luke, uh, John chapter 12, and verse uh, 30, I think it is, verse 50, I know that this, 
command leads to eternal life, so that whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. He only does what He sees the Father do. He only says what the Father tells Him to say. And in John chapter 14, He says this, But the world must learn that I love the Father, and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. So I only do what I see Him do. I only say what I hear Him say. And then I only do what He tells me to do. And what does He tell Jesus to do? How about this? Go out in the desert and fast for 40 days. You think that was easy? You think that was fun? Stand before Satan himself and allow Satan to tempt you. Do you think Satan probably used all of his best tricks on Jesus? Do you think that was easy? He's doing what his father tells him to do. Do you think it was easy when he preached his first message in Luke chapter 4 at his hometown synagogue? And the people from his hometown want to kill him. People he grew up with, that he was a little boy, and he comes to preach as a message that I come to bring good news. I'm anointed by God. I want to set captives free, and they want to kill him. You think that was easy? Do you think it was easy when he would do a miracle, like feed a whole bunch of people, and then it was they just didn't get it? They didn't get his love. Do you think it was easy when people like the rich young ruler do get his love, but then they still choose something else, that he's going to give his life for that person, and they're going to turn their back and walk away? Do you think it's easy for him to leave a place where there's no sin and there's no pain and there's no abuse and there's no disease and he sees people that are blind and lame and crippled and his compassion goes out on those people? Do you think that was easy? Do you think it was easy to go to the cross? And if it was easy, then why does he pray, God, if there's any other way? Father, let this cup pass from me. But there was no other way. Do you think it was easy? Then explain to me why he's just sweating drops of blood. Do you think it was easy to hang on the cross? And to have people mock him and ridicule him even at that moment? He's dying for them. And so it's things like, Father, forgive them. They don't, they don't get it. They don't realize what they're really doing. you think it was easy? He died for us while we were yet very difficult to love. Sinful people. So that we might have a relationship with his Father. He was demonstrating his Father's love to us. And when we honor, it's not easy, but it's revealing His love. Because real honor, not easy. And I don't know what your parents' story are. And I don't know if they were great parents, or they were terrible parents, or they were somewhere between parents, but it's never easy. But it demonstrates, it reveals His love, and it always requires grace. Anytime you're going to honor a person, it requires grace. You see, think about it. I don't know most of your parents. And I don't know if they'd win like Parent of the Year awards because they like were always, your lunches were packed and drew stuff on your sandwiches or whatever stuff they did and taught you about Jesus and how to have good manners and all the great stuff. Or if they were kind of maybe neutral parents or maybe you had parents where they like, went to church but you knew that you didn't grow up in a Christian home. You know what I'm talking about? Or maybe a parents like me that didn't claim to be followers and you might even have a, a tendency to want to hold that against them. Or maybe you had parents they were terrible parents. Like the worst parents you could have, like abandoned parents. They left you or or they were abusive or they lied or they were alcoholic or they were something that you, you're so angry about. And I don't know if they're the best parents of the year or they're the worst parents ever. They require grace because they're human. And I want to point out something about the passage. You go back to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12. It doesn't reveal anything about parents. Honor your father and mother. It doesn't say honor... Good parents. 
doesn't say honor even if they're bad parents. doesn't say honor lying parents. doesn't say honor honest parents. Honor parents that are always there for you. Honor parents that abandon you. It doesn't say anything. It doesn't reveal anything about their character. It only mentions their position because they're dad, because they're mom. But it reveals everything about us. And where we're at in our relationship with God, how can you say you love me if you don't love what I love? In fact, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 says that if we do, we're deceiving ourselves. It doesn't reveal anything about the parent. It reveals everything about us and all of us. I don't care if your parents were on this end of the spectrum, great. This end of the spectrum, terrible. We all can come up with reasons, justifications, explanations for why we wouldn't keep this commandment. And Jesus ran into that. And you know who he ran into it with? The most religious people ever. Far more moral than us. People that were, they were, and I believe many of them, genuinely feared God and wanted to go to extreme measures to make sure they didn't disobey Him. And there's a situation in Matthew chapter 15 where Jesus repeats this commandment. And what's going on is some of them, they're upset with Jesus because He's not keeping their traditions. You know what Jesus says to them? You use your traditions as justifications for your sin. You use your traditions as explanations for how you can get out of God's Word. You know what example He uses? Matthew chapter 15 and verse 4, he says, doesn't the Bible say to honor your father and mother? In fact, anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. You go to read more in the Old Testament, that's what it says. It's a very serious one. He says, but here's what you do. You take all your stuff and you say that it's dedicated to God, so when your parents come to you and they need some help, you say, I'm sorry, Mom and Dad, I can't help you. Corbin, there's a dedication over top of all this stuff, and so none of this stuff can be used for you because I'm using it for God. And what they were doing is they were taking their stuff so they could use it for themselves. They were rationalizing why they didn't have to obey God's word. They were coming up with reasons, excuses, justifications for why they wouldn't have to obey this one. And these were the most religious people ever. And you know what Jesus says to them? Matthew chapter 15 and verse 7, he says this, You hypocrites! Isaiah was right. You praise me with your lips, but your hearts, and that's what Jesus is after, your hearts are far from me. 85% of people outside the church say that we're hypocrites. Are they right? By God's definition, a hypocrite is someone who will attend an event. They'll come to a gathering. They'll look like incredibly moral people. In fact, they'll even sing songs to Him, but their hearts, that's where it happens. Their hearts are far from Him. How do you know where someone's heart is? What do they love? If they love Him, then won't they love what He loves? Where's your heart? Praise Him with your lips, your hearts are far from Him, then according to God's definition, that's hypocrisy. People outside the church will define hypocrisy as we say one thing and we do something else. It's very similar. That we'd say we love God, but we don't love people, and so then, of course, that would be hypocrisy. Maybe they're right. See, this is hard. This is not an easy commandment. So how does this happen? There's only one way that it happens with the power of God. It requires His kind of grace. Not just you kind of overlook an offense. Not just kind of, it's an empowering by Him to give His grace because honor always requires grace. Now let me say something. I know some of you, all parents require grace, but some of you, it requires a lot of grace. You might have had some really terrible parents. I'm sorry but you can still do this by God's power according to His grace. And, and I'm talking about parents. Maybe you had parents that were abusive or abandoned or did terrible stuff. And so how do you do this? Well, It's not just pretending like stuff never happened. It's okay for you 
to seek reconciliation with them. In fact, that would be incredibly biblical. Let me tell you how you do it. You lead with grace. It's not accusing them. It's not trying to condemn them. It's not trying to push them into a corner and make them pay for what they did to you. It's, it's, it's leading with grace and because you want the best relationship you can have with them ultimately for the glory of God that you demonstrate the love of God which is going to require the grace of God. So you can have a conversation with them about the stuff that happened. You seek that reconciliation and do it in a non-threatening way. You know, you're out sitting by a lake and talking with Dad and something comes up and it opens the opportunity and, and you share, Dad, you know, when I was a kid, this and... In an ideal world, what would happen is you'd reconcile and you'd hug and then the movie would be over with and the sun would go down, right? We live in the real world. And what will happen for some of you is you'll make a phone call today. You'll send an email. You'll set up a vacation. You'll invite your parents to come to your house. You'll do something to try and reconcile. And they'll pretend like it never happened. I never did that. You know, Just kind of push that away, deny it. Uh, they'll minimize it. They'll say things. Everyone does that. You're so sensitive. Why are you this way? And you always that way. And it's because of this. And you got a cousin who's somebody and whatever. And they kind of brush under the rug. And isn't that really hard? When you seek to reconcile, and the reconciliation doesn't happen. I saw an interview with John Piper this week, where he was asked a very difficult question. The question was, "What do you tell a Christian adult who's abused by Christian parents?" And what he does, he tells them to seek reconciliation. You go for reconciliation, but a lot of times it doesn't happen. A lot of times they won't reconcile. And that's just kind of what happens is they'll deny it, they'll minimize it. And after talking about that, he gives these words, and I want to share them to you exactly the way that he shared them. So at that point, this is what you say. God, you know, and I know, this shouldn't have happened. You know, and I know that it was painful, and you know, and I know that it has ongoing effects on me, and my struggle. But Lord, I don't want to add the burden to my life of an unforgiving spirit. So I'm taking that injustice that was done to me and I'm giving it to you and asking, would you please settle that and take care of that? And then Piper goes on and says, one of two things will happen. One is he will forgive them. And he says this, he could forgive them because they really trust in the cross, in which case you wouldn't want to belittle the sufficiency of Christ's sufferings by adding punishment to Christ. So you don't add to them by placing more punishment, more guilt, and more condemnation on them. He said, or two, what will happen is he's going to send them to hell and you will someday endorse that too. He's going to settle it. You don't need to. And he goes on to say, this is incredibly liberating. And that's exactly what it's supposed to be. Romans chapter 12. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, says the Lord. You're, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink and you will dump fiery coals on his head. And God says, don't take vengeance. Don't hold a grudge. Let it go. Give it to me. I'm God. I'll settle accounts. You just keep loving, Piper says. So I think the simple short answer, what to do, is that you seek reconciliation and when it isn't resolved to your satisfaction, you take the pain and the injustice and you give it to God and you don't hold it. You say, I'm not going to be the judge anymore. I'm not going to be the jury anymore. I'm not going to be the executioner anymore. I'm going to be free. And you don't add the burden to the stuff that happened of unforgiveness and bitterness to your life. You hold that on yourself when you do that. And so I hear Piper say that and you know what I say? How, Piper? Like, how do we do this, though? Like, give it to God. Sounds great. Great church answer. How? And you see this repeated in the New Testament. I told you every commandment except for the Sabbath is repeated in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks about this command. He doesn't change the command at all. He changes the promise a little bit. He doesn't change the command at all. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. 
to honor your father and mother. Still valid for us. But what's interesting in the New Testament is the context. And you know what the context is for Ephesians chapter 6? Ephesians chapter 5, believe it or not. Ephesians chapter 5, what happens in verse 18, here's the commandment. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine. And so here's the deal. Don't let anything control your life except the Spirit of the living God. You be filled with the Spirit. And by this point in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul has shown us, he's given us as a deposit when we trust Jesus, the Holy Spirit within us. And he's explained to us it's the same Spirit that actually raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So the Spirit of God that raises dead people, makes them alive, He's able to do something in you. And so you be filled with the Spirit. Don't let your life be controlled by anything else, whether that's alcohol, whether that's something else, driving force of your life is success, or driving force of your life is another person. Don't. Be filled with the Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, you're able to do some incredible things. You know what He lists? The results, the evidence of what it looks like when you're filled with the Spirit. It's how you speak and some things like that. The last one, is verse 21 in Ephesians chapter 5. As you submit to one another, mutual submissiveness. And do you know what he talks about after that? He goes on to list relationships that require submissiveness. Wives to husbands and children to parents, employees to bosses. That's spirit-filled living. That's what it looks like. And here, how in the world do you do this? How can you extend grace to someone who's so dishonorable? By the power of the Spirit living within you. See, that's why he's after your heart. He wants to do an inward transformation. Just like we sang in that song, he wants to transform you from the inside out. It's not fix all your relationships and then you'll be a happier person. He wants to fill you with the Spirit, which will transform you internally. The byproduct ends up being relationships. The byproduct of our loving God ends up that we love people. The byproduct of these things is that ultimately we live for what we were meant to live for, his glory. He redeems us, not to improve our circumstances, not so that we can be happy people. He redeems us for his glory and it's for our good. And there's this inward transformation by the power of the Spirit. But does anyone really experience that? I was reading this week an article from this Times Online. It's a British uh, magazine, and they were talking about uh, this woman. That, that they didn't use her real name. She uses an alias name when she writes books. Her name's Hannah Shaw. She's written a book called The Imam's Daughter. And uh, if you don't know what an imam is, an imam is a uh, priest in Islamic religion. They officiate at the mosque. And her dad was the, the imam. And I'll tell you this story, and I'll just say this. Not every Muslim, doesn't represent every Muslim, just like there's people that do terrible things in the name of Jesus. Uh, there's people that do all kinds of bad stuff out there. But her dad, he was a jerk. He was a dirtbag. Like, as bad as you can imagine. And she talks about how, being his daughter, how he did things as a father that no father should ever do to a daughter. From the time she was five years old until she was 15 years old. And then when she was 15 years old, they had arranged that she was going to get married. When she was 16, they lived in Europe, and they were going to send her off to Pakistan to be in this arranged marriage, somebody she didn't even know. And when she was 16 years old, she was supposed to be in this marriage, and she got afraid, and she ran away. And she ended up going to this home of these Christian people, people who were followers of Jesus Christ. She said she found something in Christianity she never found in Islam, forgiveness and love. And then they kept her in this safe house. And her dad found out where the safe house was. And she tells the story in the book. And I'll tell you, don't read the book unless... It's pretty intense, unless you're ready for some really intense stuff. But she tells a story about how there was these 40 men that came with her dad when she was staying in the safe house. And they had axes and knives and hammers, and they came to kill her. And they're pounding on the door of this safe house. And her dad, you can imagine hearing your dad's voice, her dad starts to yell through the letterbox, you filthy traitor. I'm going to rip out your throat, and we're going to burn you alive. And she doesn't come out. 
It's from your father's voice? And they don't want to cause too much of a scene. They leave and disperse and go away. They don't want to be known like that. And so what ends up happening is that she flees. She knows has this relationship with Jesus. And now she, that was when she was 16. Now she's in her early 30s. She's doing this interview with this guy in Britain, right? He asked a logical question. So Christianity offers love and forgiveness. What about for your father? And she says, very candid, very real. It's taken a long time. And she says, it's not like she prayed some prayer and all of a sudden it was all great. She talks about screaming in a room alone, how bad it is. But she's been forgiven much, right? And when you're forgiven much, you love much. She has to forgive. She says, if I don't forgive, I just add to my life anger and bitterness. How does she do that? The power of the Spirit of God is the only way. She can't do it. You can't do it. I can't do it. No one can do this on their own. The only way it can happen is when it reveals God's love and therefore it requires God's grace and brings God glory. You honor your father and mother, not because of any characteristic of them, whether they're the best or the worst, but because they're mom and dad. That's why. Because of their position. They have a God-like position in your life. They were co-creators with God of you. Uh, they, you might have all kinds of hurt and all kinds of pain, but you really, you wouldn't be where you're at if it wasn't for what they had done. I, I emailed my mom this week. I said, thanks for changing so many diapers. I'm 34. <laughs> that probably seemed real random to her, okay? Thanks for what you did and the sacrifices and, and, and maybe everything wasn't right. Maybe everything wasn't perfect. But your mom or your dad, how can you do that? It requires grace. Grace that you don't just come up with. You don't just brush everything away. It's grace that requires a spirit empowering. But when you do it, there's a reward. See, honor reveals God's love. It requires God's grace, but it reaps God's reward. Isn't it gracious of God when we get such a difficult commandment that He gives us a reward for keeping it? Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. So that. There's a reason why here. And here's the reason. I'm going to give you a reward that you would live long in the land. Now we read that. That's obviously a promise that's given specifically to Israel. And they're going to go into the promised land and He's going to let them live long lives in the land. And then you see it in the New Testament. It doesn't have anything to do with land. See, the Apostle Paul actually changes it. If you read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, it says that you might enjoy long life on this earth. And so you might think to yourself, then I get to live for a long time. I think a commentator, Philip Ryken, does a great job explaining this Hebrew phrase. Very literally, this Hebrew phrase doesn't have to do with when your life ends. It means to experience the fullness of God's blessing. And so when you keep this commandment, honor your father and mother, He's promising the fullness of His blessing. And what is the fullness of His blessing? Well, Jesus said He came that you could have full life. You could have abundant life. But here's the deal. You've got an enemy. And that enemy will lie to you. And he'll tell you things like, but you don't have to. And you help a whole lot of other people. And it's you, you take care of these folks. And so... It's different with your mom. Your story was different and they did this and they're this horrible and that's why you don't have to and there are these lies that will come to you. And do you know what your enemy wants to do to you? He wants to steal from you. He wants to rob from you the fullness of life that Jesus is offering you. And let me tell you something. If you want what God intended for you, you've got to live what God intended for you. When He gives the commandments, He's not doing it to heap burden on you, to put more bondage on you. He's showing you how to live in freedom. And that seems like such a simple and redundant statement. If you want the life God intends... You need to live the life God intends. And so if you want the fullness of His blessing, the abundant life, the exceedingly abundant life, you've got to follow what He says to do, which will require 
you depending on His Spirit. And you know how you get filled with the Spirit? You surrender every area of your life, even your relationship with mom and dad. You surrender everything to Him. If you know what He promises you, peace, kindness, joy, patience, long-suffering, real life. He promises you a relationship, the fullness of a real relationship here with the Father that comes through the Son. He promises you, Jesus, that you would know Him and the power of His resurrection. You'd know a power in your life that's undescribable, that's supernatural. And you'd have the fellowship of His suffering at times. But you'd know that power of the resurrection and that you would know the fruit of the Spirit by living filled with the Spirit. It's the only way that it happens. It's the fullness of His blessing. It's the reward that's given to you when you honor Him. God's for honor. Are you? And I don't mean do you mentally agree with the things I'm saying or do you want to be, but when you look at your life, do you honor your mother and father? It's the first relationship He talks about when He talks about loving other people. Not the guy that's being down broken on the side of the road. Do you honor your father and mother? And that will reveal His love, which will require His grace, but you will reap His reward. The only way it happens is if we surrender. Let's pray.